The Fireman, Part One of Careers of Danger and Daring. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirby Bonds. Careers of Danger and Daring by Cleveland Moffat. The Fireman, wherein we see a sleeping village swept by a river of fire and the burning of a famous hotel. I will first tell a story, fresh in my memory, about a New Jersey village lost in the hills back of Lake Hoptakong, a charming sleepy little village that reaches along a stream fringed with butterball trees and looks contentedly out of its valley up the steep wooded hill that rises before it. Nobody in Glen Gardner cares much what there is in the world beyond that hill. The general attitude of Glen Gardner towards progress is shown well enough by this, that the village could never see the use of a fire department. They never had one, and never proposed to. Other people's houses might get on fire. Theirs never did. As a matter of fact, nobody could remember when there had been a fire in Glen Gardner, unless it was Aunt Anne Fritz, who was eighty-eight years old, and remembered back farther than was necessary. This was the case on a certain drizzling Sunday in March of the new century year, when, at six-thirty a.m., the world beyond the hill intruded itself upon Glen Gardner's peacefulness in such a strange and sudden fashion that old Mr. Bergstresser collapsed from the shock. What made it worse was the fact that there had been a dance the night before at Farmer Apgar's, and half-past six found most of the village dozing comfortably. There was really nothing to do before church-time, so they all thought at least, little suspecting that even now, as they slept, a long oil-train was puffing up the steep grade from Easton, bringing sixty cars loaded with crude petroleum and trouble. On came the oil-train, its front engine panting as the drivers slipped, and the pusher back of the caboose shouldering up the load with snorts of impatient. Oof! The front of the train climbs over the ridge at Hampton Junction half a mile back of Glen Gardner, where the Jersey Central tracks reach their highest point. Now they are all right. There is a long down grade ahead for three miles. The pusher gives a final shove at the rear end and cuts loose, glad to be rid of the job. The men in the caboose wave goodbye to the fireman and the engineer as they drop away. Hello! What's that jerk? They look out and see the last oil car just clearing the divide. It's nothing. They're over now. They're running faster. Queer place, this. There's a spring here with two streams that part in the middle like a woman's hair. One goes down the east side, the other the west side. What? Broken in two? The caboose crew starts to run forward. A brakeman on the front half starts to run back. Thirty-seven cars behind the engine. A coupling has snapped, 
and the train is taking the downgrade in two sections. Twenty-three loaded oil cars are running away, and a million gallons of oil are chasing two million gallons down a mountainside. Everything now depends upon the brakeman on the forward section. He is the only man who can judge the danger, and signals the engineer what to do. The engineer does not even know that anything is wrong. It is plainly the brakeman's business to keep the front half of the train out of the way of the rear half. They must go faster, faster as the runaway cars gain on them. Anyone can see that it is undesirable to have two million gallons of oil struck by a million gallons coming at forty miles an hour. Yet the brakeman does the wrong thing. No man can be sure how he will act in imminent peril. The brakeman signals the engineer to stop. Perhaps he planned a gradual slow-up to block the flying section gently. Perhaps he did not realize how fast the runaway was coming. Most likely he lost his head entirely, as better men have done in less serious crisis. At any rate, the front section presently drew up with the grinding brakes on the ledge of the tracks that stretches along the creek of the mountain just over the slope where the slumbering village lay, not five feet from Carling's warehouse, beyond which were the coal yards and the wooden houses of Glen Gardner, the post office, the hardware store, and the main street. All places for that train to stop. This was the worst. It was a matter of seconds now until the crash came, and on this followed a shattering blast that shook the valley and the hill and brought the village to its feet in a daze of fear. Four oil cars were smashed in the wreck, and hurled across the tracks for the rear cars to pile upon, and straight away there was a gushing oil well here, out of which, in the first ten seconds, came an explosion with the noise of cannon that showered burning oil over fields and trees and shingled housetops, while a fire column shot up fifty feet in the air and began its fierce feeding on the broken tanks. And out of this fire fountain came a smoking fire river that rolled down the hill toward the village. At this moment, Joe Snyder, who had not gone to the dance the night before, and was doomed now to the early worm's fate, had just put his key in the door of the butcher shop. He never turned the key, nor saw it again, nor saw the butcher shop again. What he did see was a roaring torrent of oil sweeping down the street and blazing fifteen feet high as it came, and the picture next presented, when Snyder, white as a ghost, raced down the sidewalk ahead of the fire, will stay long in the memory of those who saw it from their windows. But this was no time for looking at pictures out of windows. There were other things to be done, and done quickly. Fire never did descend so swiftly upon a village even as the startled sleepers stared in fright houses all about them burst into flames like candles on a christmas tree now the warehouse is burning and the sheds across the track and there goes the hardware store and there goes the carpenter shop and now the fire stream rolls through main street and licks up reeves house on one corner and vlet's house on the other then the drug store goes and carling store and reinhardt's restaurant Trees are burning, fences are burning, and the very streets are burning, 
and men see fire rolling across their front yards like drifting snow. I do not purpose to follow the incidents of this fire and the several explosions, nor show how the village fought against it vainly, damming up fiery oil streams and turning their courses, toiling at bucket lines and spreading blistering walls with soaked carpets. The point is that these efforts alone would never have availed, and Glen Gardner would speedily have lain in ashes, had not fire engines from Somerville and Washington been hurried to the spot. Even as it was, a section of the village was wiped away in clean-licked ruins, which stood many a day as a grim reminder that the only safety against fires in these times lies in being able to fight fires well. Which brings me, of course, to the modern fire department, and the men who risk their lives as a matter of daily routine to protect their fellow men. I will begin with some incidents of one particular fire that happened in New York on St. Patrick's Day, 1899. It was a pleasant afternoon, and Fifth Avenue was crowded with people gathered to watch the parade. A gayer, pleasanter scene it would have been hard to find at three o'clock, or a sadder one at four. The ancient order of Hibernians, coming along with bands and banners, were nearing 46th Street, when suddenly there sounded hoarse shouts and the angry clang of fire-gongs, and down 47th Street came hook and ladder four on a dead run, and swung into Fifth Avenue straight at the pompous Hibernians, who immediately became badly scared Irishmen's and took to their heels. But the big ladders went no further. They were needed here, oh, so badly needed, for the Windsor Hotel was on fire, the famous Windsor Hotel at Fifth Avenue and 47th Street. It was on fire, far gone with fire before ever the engines were called, and the reason that everyone supposed that, of course, somebody had sent the alarm. And so they all watched the fire and waited for the engines. Ten, fifteen minutes, and by that time a great column of flames was roaring up the elevator shaft, and people on the roof in their madness were jumping down to the street. Then some sane citizen went to a firebox and rang the call, and within ninety seconds engine sixty-five was on the ground and after her came engines fifty-four and twenty-one. There was no making up that lost fifteen minutes. The fire had things in its teeth now, and three, four, five alarms went out in quick succession. Twenty-three engines had their streams on that fire in almost as many minutes, and the big fire tower came from 36th Street and Ninth Avenue, and six hook-and-ladder companies came. Let us watch Hook and Ladder 21 for a moment. She was the mate of the fire tower, and the rush of her galloping horses was echoing up the avenue just as Battalion Chief John Binns made out a woman in a seventh-story window on the 46th Street side, where the fire was raging fiercely. The woman was holding a little dog in her arms, and it looked as if she was going to jump. The chief waved her to stay where she was and running towards 
21, as she plunged along, motioned toward 46th Street, whereupon the tiller man, at his back wheel, did a pretty piece of steering, and even as they swung the long truck in the turn, the crew began hoisting the big ladder. Such a thing is never done, for the swaying of that ton-ton mass might easily upset the truck, but every second counted here, and they took the chance. As they drew along the curb, Fireman McDermott sprang up the slowly rising ladder, and two men came behind with scaling ladders, for they saw that the main ladder would never reach the woman. Five stories is what it did reach, and then McDermott, standing on the top round, smashed one of the scaling ladders through a six-story window, and climbed on, smashing the second scaling ladder through a seventh-story window, and five seconds later had the woman in his arms. To carry a woman down the front of a burning building on scaling ladders is a matter of regular routine for a fireman, like jumping from a fourth-story window down to a net, or making a bridge of his body. It is part of the business. But to have one foot in the air reaching for the lower rung of a swaying, flimsy thing, and to feel another rung break under you and your struggling burden, and to fall two feet and catch safely, that is a thing not every fireman could do. But McDermott did it, and he brought the woman unharmed to the ground, and the dog too. Almost at the same moment, the crowd on 47th Street thrilled in admiration of a rescue feat even more perilous. On the roof, screaming in terror, was Kate Flanagan, a servant, swaying over the cornice, on the point of throwing herself down. Then out of a top-floor window crept a little fireman, and stood on the fire escape, gasping for air. Then he reached in and dragged out an unconscious woman, and lowered her to others, and was just starting down himself when yells from the street made him look up, and he saw Kate Flanagan. She was ten feet above him, and he had no means of reaching her. The crowd watched anxiously, and saw the little fireman lean back over the fire escape, saw him motion and shout something to the woman. Then she crept over the cornice edge, hung by her hands for a second, and dropped into the fireman's arms. It isn't every big strong man who could catch a sizable woman in a fall like that and hold her. But this stripling did it, because he had the nerve and knew how, and that made another life saved. By this time flames were breaking out of every story from street to roof. It seemed impossible to go on with the rescue work, yet the men persisted, even on the Fifth Avenue front. Bare of fire escapes, they used the long extension ladders as far as they could, then scaled it from window to window. Here it was that William Clark of Hook and Ladder 7 made the rescues that gave him the Bennett Medal, took three women out of a seventh-story window when it was like climbing over furnace mouths to get there, and one of these women he reached only by working his way along narrow stone ledges for three windows, and back the same way to his ladder with the woman on his shoulders. Even so, 
It is likely he would have failed in this last effort had not Edward Ford come part way along the ledges to meet and help him. Meantime, Fireman Kennedy of Engine 23 had rescued an old lady from the sixth floor, and Joseph Cratchaville of Hook and Ladder 2 had carried out Mrs. Leland, wife of the proprietor, from deadly peril on the fifth floor, and Frank Tizer of Hook and Ladder 4 had found a family named Wells, father, mother, and daughter, in a blazing room and borne them out with his own clothes burning to the arms of Brennan and Sweeney, who were waiting for him in a fury of fire at the top of the eighty-five-foot extension ladder. And Andrew Fitzgerald, also of Hook and Ladder 4, but off on sick leave with pneumonia, had shown the true fireman's spirit as he came from the doctors. His instructions were to go home and stay there. He was not on duty at all. He was scarcely strong enough to be out of bed, but when he heard there were lives in peril down the avenue, he forgot everything and ran to the place of danger. There was need of him here, and sick leave or not, pneumonia or not, he would do what he could. What he did was to carry out the last ones taken alive from the ill-fated hotel. Three women, whom he bore in his arms from the fourth floor through the roaring hallways, then up a fire escape and back into the building with the flames singeing him and shattering blast of exploding gas pursue him, and finally out on a balcony whence, with the help of policeman Harrigan, he got them over safely to an adjoining housetop. No wonder the Bonner Medal was awarded him later for conspicuous courage. End of section one. Recording by Kirby Bonds.